Welcome to The Millionaire's Lawyer, where you'll hear leading professionals share expert advice on how to grow your business and sell it for maximum profitability. If you want to learn lawyer-proven strategies for building and exiting your business, then this is the podcast for you. Your host, J.P. McAvoy, is a business lawyer, college professor, and best-selling author who has been assisting clients start, grow, and sell their businesses for millions of dollars for over 15 years. Will yours be the next? Now here's your host, J.P. McAvoy. Welcome to The Millionaire's Lawyer. Thrilled to have you on today and thrilled to have Jared Spiewak on as well. Jared, thanks for joining us. I know you're joining us from uh, New Hampshire. I guess we're still in the midst of COVID and we're looking at specifically at how things are changing the online world, which is where, of course, you live. How are things on your end of things? Things are interesting, to say the least. Overall, from where I am, COVID itself isn't that big of a deal. So we have very little population. So we've been very lucky where near me, the whole kind of business world hasn't changed too much. However, I work with clients on a national basis mm-hmm. and we've, we have some clients in, you know, in places like Las Vegas, which are very heavily tourist places. And not only are things getting shut down where people can operate their businesses in those areas, but also now that they're back open, not a whole lot of tourists still kind of going there. So some places have been uh, very heavily impacted where other places not so much depending on the area, but we have seen a kind of a massive influx in two different things. One is new businesses being started. Mm -hmm. I've never in my life had so many people reach out to me saying, Hey, I just started my business yesterday. You know, let's talk about doing X, Y, and Z or whatever it may be. So that's everyone's just sitting down. They have their side project that they're starting to ramp up or that they've been waiting to start and now they're starting it. I've seen a lot of people, they've had to move where their marketing spend is as well. So they've had a trend, mm-hmm. you know, there's not a whole lot of people. So for example, I know the statistic off the top of my head in the Palm Beach County area in Florida, driving was down by 50 to 91%. Wow. So your billboards aren't probably doing, you know, they're not nearly worth as much as they were beforehand. You know, they're worth 50 to 91% less than what they were worth beforehand. So transitioning that spend to, you know, the billboard of internets, you know, something like Facebook ads, Instagram ads, whatever it may be, is where people are because now people are spending every waking minute on social media because what else do they have to do? So we've seen a transition in one, a lot of new businesses opening up and two, a lot of businesses transitioning their online spend to digital. Yeah, people are living in the online world more and more. We continually hear how things have it's escalated the pace at which uh, the transition to the online world has become a reality. You've been doing this for some time, working for, you know, first SEO and then with uh, Blue Dog Media. I think it's all things online, right? You're able to promote or assist a business with its own growth. What are some of the techniques you use to do that? Yeah, sure. So we specialize only within SEO and Google Ads PPC. The reason why we specialize in that is I'm a big believer in focusing on what you're good at. It's a whole other conversation I could get into as the pros and cons and different models within uh, my own industry. But uh, some of the biggest ways that kind of what just by definition, what these channels do primarily for businesses that we work with, which are service-based businesses, a lot of law firms, CPAs, private practices, and so on, is connecting people who are currently searching for their services at this exact moment to their website. Mm -hmm. So breaking that down in a little bit more of a technical aspect. SEO is the process of showing up higher visibly on Google's search engine. When somebody types in to Google what they're looking for, Google gives them results. The purpose of SEO is to raise where someone ranks either organically, those are the 10 blue links that you see, well, 8 to 10 depending on how it's laid out, 
and the Google Maps as well. So that's also part of the SEO process. The other side of what we do is on the paid advertising side of things. Most of our time is spent on the search network. There's a couple different networks. There's search, display, discovery. Um, there's also the video network, which is through YouTube and so on and so forth. Most of our time is spent on the search network, which is where someone searches for something on Google and your ads show up at the very top, or they can also show up within a map section on Google as well. So that's where we focus is on helping connect businesses with people searching for their services, primarily at the time they're searching for. For bigger clients, we'll also dive into things like discovery, which we can also get into as well. But that's mostly where we spend our time. As you say, you'll get into discovery. Is this another, it's another network as well? Is that what each of these is doing? So on the Google platform, is that what it is? Yes. So most of the, uh, when it comes specifically to advertising, the search network is primarily used for middle of the funnel or buyer intent, people who are looking to make a decision or bottom of the funnel, people who are maybe looking for reviews about your company, company versus other company, whatever it may be. But there's also a whole of the market, which are people who are looking for information or don't know yet that you are someone that they should talk to. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, let's say the average new business owner may not understand the importance of proper accounting and QuickBooks and cash flow management. So they're not searching for a CPA or an accountant necessarily, but you can educate them to that being important by showing them an ad on the discovery network, on display ads, through YouTube ads, uh, whatever it may be. People who are not currently searching for it, but you can set certain targeting such as, I wanna target people who are business owners or who exhibit certain traits that a business owner would tend to have. And I wanna show my ad to them that talks about, here's why it's so important to have a CPA look at your cash flow management process or to have QuickBooks set up properly. And the biggest difference there is that they're not currently in market, is that you have to have a much more refined process to take that person from not even thinking about working to you to understanding that, okay, they have a possible problem to, okay, now we have, they actually want to look for a solution and you're that solution. Yeah, putting them on the right footing, right? Uh, so mm-hmm. as you uh, mentioned there, Jared, a few different ways of doing that, a few different tools. You know, I'm sure a lot of people listening constantly think about what is being targeted towards us or what, you know, how much are we in control of what's actually coming our way or how much is it uh, sort of big Google sending things our way based on uh, AI and all those types of things? Like how much is actually controlled now? So the way that I would interpret that is that when you search for something on Google, mm-hmm. you are doing that of, of your own accord. Now, what most people are probably and what you might be alluding to there as well is where you see something based on other things that you searched yeah, for. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of that is controlled by you there are algorithms that change that as well. So for example, there's something called RLSAs or remarketing lists for search ads. So what that is, is that if let's say I sell camping gear and I'm a e-commerce retailer that sells camping gear and someone was on my website and they searched on Google for a tent or binoculars or whatever it may be. And then maybe I paid for that ad because I know someone's looking for my products or services. They come to my website. Then I remarket to them, meaning that I show my ads only to those people who have already been to my websites from my ads. And I say, hey, I want to show my ads anytime anybody searches for anything around bird watching or how to use binoculars or how to set up a tent. Now, these are things that you normally wouldn't want to target people for because, you know, there are tons of people searching for that, but you know that they were in market to buy your product. Mm -hmm. So you're searching for them that way. There is AI and Google's machine learning and everything evolved around certain processes around like how much you pay per click or depending on your bid strategy or things like that. But you determine, okay, great. This is the remarketing list. This is where I want to target to people. You can also do things such as, 
on YouTube. I want to show my, going back to the CPA example, I want to show my ad about uh, the importance of having a CPA or tax strategies or whatever it may be to people who have searched on Google search around things like financial information. So you control that, but you don't necessarily, you don't get access to like an individual person mm-hmm. to say, hey, I want to show this particular ad to this individual person, but you do control the groups of people that you want to target based on certain behavior they want to start. Right, right. So you can target it the same sort of way, which is interesting. And, you know, Google has been smart for designing programs that allow us to do this or as a business advertise those people. How effective are the Google ad uh, programs if people, uh, you know, and I guess uh, I know you spend a lot of time talking about ROI, right? So making sure that the money is is well spent. What does that typical conversation look like? How, how do you work through the ROI with a client? Sure. So this is one of the most difficult and challenging things that we work with with people because you'll hear the word ROI, return on investment, thrown around a lot within any sort of marketing material that you read. Oh, you know, our focus is on ROI, our focus is on making you more money than you're investing in. But ROI is a lot more complicated than just spending money on ads and seeing leads come in. A lead is not money. So in order to track ROI, a lot of that is actually out of our control. And that's where the difficulty of the conversation comes up. Because in order to track ROI, you have to be tracking, let's just say Google ads, just because it's a little bit simpler to track than something like SEO. So somebody clicks on your app, super easy to track, built into the box. Someone converts on your website or landing page. Most of the time, it's super easy to set up through form tracking or call tracking platform like CallRail. You can track how many conversions you got. But that's still not ROI. That's just conversion. So that's not even qualified leads necessarily. But you then have to track how many of those conversions were actual leads and not just like a bot filling something out or someone that it doesn't actually own a business. They're thinking about owning a business, but you only work with people who are business owners right now, whatever it may be. So your CRM, your customer relationship management system or your case management system or whatever it may be for whatever type of business that you use, your your database of leads, you need to make sure that there is a connection that says, okay, here are the leads, but also this is where the leads came in Mm -hmm. from. This came in from Google Ads. This came in from organic search. This came in from our Facebook ad or referral, whatever it may be. Then your customer database also has to track, did we actually close this person into a customer or client? How much did they pay them? And how much have they paid us over time? So if you're in a business that, uh, let's say you're a roofing company and your typical client will get a new roof with you and then they'll get another new roof with you in 25 years you don't actually know the true roi of that campaign until 25 years after it ends however this is where other numbers come really important which is called your client your customer lifetime value which is on average how much is a customer worth to you and so you know if on average a customer is worth fifteen thousand dollars you from the first transaction they make to the last transaction they make you can estimate that if you get 10 new customers a month from this campaign that's worth roughly $150,000 in future revenue to you. It's more likely that you're basing your campaigns off of customer lifetime value rather than the actual amount mm-hmm. that your customer pays for you because it, most businesses, it's just too long a period of time. Even if it's only like a year or two, you know, you're not going to want to wait two years to say, hey, was this campaign profitable? So knowing your customer lifetime value is really important. And the challenge that we face is that a lot of businesses don't track their numbers. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's a big thing we hear consistently is, you know, know have some key performance in- indicators, right? Mm-hmm. So understand uh, what is moving the business, what's moving the, the needle, not just respect with the uh, media campaigns, but in all areas, uh, important to do that, reflect and be able to uh, think about the best way of growing things and to go forward. You see this, and you, that was a great answer there, Jared, with respect to, you know, the value of a client 
what are, in addition to, you know, a lot of the point is to have the clients there, but what are other assets that you can help a business develop to increase its value? Uh, so an, an online presence, obviously, and it's, and it's media presence, its own branding, right? These are all things you're able to assist. And what are some of the things that you can speak to that are, are ways of doing it well so as to increase the value of a business? Yeah, of course. So one of the most important things, and this is speaking from also having a business that buys, grows, and sells digital assets. One of the most important things you can actually know in your business is your numbers. So by operating, not just understanding that, hey, you know, we're running ads and you're going to track conversions and, hey, you got 20 conversions this month, but also being able to speak to and, and help connect business owners with the resources that they need to actually track everything end to end. Mm-hmm. It makes it much easier going through that sales process. It makes the business worth a lot more when someone is looking to buy a business and one business says, we get 500 phone calls a month. And the other business says, we get 300 calls. This is how many are qualified. This is how many break out into each individual right. product or service. This is how much these customers are worth. And on average, our Google Ads campaign generates $250,000 a month in future revenue, which will take us about five years to accrue. We'll have this gross profit margin, we'll have this net margin, so on and so forth. So knowing your numbers is very important. Where we come in is by building a reliable source of those leads to actually be generated. And of course, having those conversations about how to actually track this stuff for the people who are willing and able to track it. Again, it is like pulling teeth to get some people to Mm -hmm. actually track this and set this up. And there's only so much we can do there, but it is very important to have set up. Yeah. And so as you say, it's to have it set up and use it. And then I imagine it's uh, an investment over time as well, right? There's probably at least, I mean, I guess I'll ask you, what's what's Mm -hmm. the minimum length of time you suggest people implement a strategy like this. And if it's not a permanent strategy to ensure that it is working, watch it over what period of time do you suggest people need to be doing that? Sure. So let me answer this in a couple different ways, both on the advertising and the SEO side of things. So on the advertising side of things, you're going to have two main types of strategies that you might want to run. Middle of the funnel, people who are currently searching for your services and top of the funnel, people who are maybe looking for information about your services Mm -hmm or people who don't know that they might want your products or services. So with a middle of the funnel campaign, there's two things that you need for it to be successful. Google ads, what it costs you to advertise is not based on Google's numbers, it's based on what your competitors pay. Mm. So if Google ads doesn't work for you, you have one of three issues. There's an issue with your business, maybe your profit margins are too low, you're not closing clients often enough, whatever it may be, that your average lead is worth less than what your competitor's average lead is worth, so they can outspend you easily. Number two, there's an issue with your conversion, however you're generating leads. Maybe you don't have a very attractive offer. Maybe you make it very difficult for people to convert, right? It's difficult to find your phone number, your form, whatever it may be. Number three, there's an issue within your ad account. Competitors are paying for this because it's profitable for them. Assumably, they're not just blowing money because they can. So if your competitors can make it work, there's a way for you to make it work. You just need to figure it out. So it comes to two things. One, do you have the budget to actually figure that out? If it costs you $20 a click and you're spending $20 a month, it's going to take you a very long time to figure Mm -hmm. that out. And do you have the acumen, the business acumen, the marketing acumen to sit down and spend that time? So what I typically tell people with Google ads, we can set up a campaign today and it might be profitable from day one. It might also take three months to be profitable. We don't know until you actually start running ads because there's, we don't have any data. The first thing we're doing with your ads is always data collection. Over time, your ads will always perform better. There are some caveats with that. Sometimes a new competitor comes in and all cowboy style, they just raise your spend. They waste a bunch of money for three months. And then for three months, your ROI goes down a little bit until they realize that they blew a bunch of money. But that's a totally different situation. So what I typically tell people is 
you generally want to invest enough that you're getting at least 15 to 20 clicks a week. I tend to find that that's the sweet spot where you're getting enough data to make decisions within a good period of time. You can do something where you're getting five clicks a week, but it might take you so long to get any sort of mm. information that you're going, okay, great. It's been four months. Sure. Maybe you've not spent a whole lot, but you're like, it's been four months of time. This still isn't working. I'm going to pull the plug on this where maybe if you had spent, you know, maybe double, triple that amount of money, you would have figured that out within, you would have gotten to that point in time within a month, two months, whatever it may be. So I typically tell people three months should be your testing period. You should be willing to try it for at least three months to figure out, is this viable and to mature your overall campaign? And I'll break down some numbers of what that looks like in a minute here. Then for a campaign to be saturated is the wrong word, but for it to be highly predictable, Mm -hmm. you're probably looking at about eight to 12 months depending on the campaign. So within three months, I want to see that this is working and that our numbers are looking either good or the numbers that we need to get to look very achievable by this point. And from there, it's a matter of just lowering over time. For example, one of our clients is a family lawyer. They were already running ads. And so we were able to go in and adjust their ads, set up more conversion tracking that they didn't have set up. And for the first, I'd say the first month, they were pretty happy with the results. We were getting leads at about 100 to $120 cost per conversion, conversion rate about 10 to 15%. We are happy with that. We always, we of course wanted to improve that because it wasn't as we wanted it to. Within three months, that got down to about $80 cost per conversion and about a 15 to 20% conversion rate. Been working with them for about seven months now. The mo- our most recent past month, our conversion rate was nearly 30%, well, and our cost per conversion was somewhere between $60 and $80 off the top mm-hmm. of my head. So over time, as we had more data, we were able to make more decisions. We were able to go, okay, this ad group converts at a cost that is too high. So we're going to either turn that off, reduce what we're going to pay for, click on it, whatever it may be. But we need enough data and clicks and money spent on that ad group to be able to make that decision. And that goes for everything. You know, certain zip codes will be really great. Some won't be too great. Counties, states, depending on how big your overall radius that you're targeting is. Certain days of the week, you might find that people just aren't converting. It's way more expensive per click because maybe a lot of your competitors advertise Monday through Friday. And maybe Saturday and Sunday is pretty low cost for you because they don't answer the phone Monday through Friday. I mean, sorry, Saturday and Sunday, but you do. So maybe your costs are a lot cheaper on those days. So it requires a, a certain data to be able to make these decisions. But to keep that brief, I would say, Look to invest 15, 20 clicks a week for at least three months to determine, hey, is this going to be something that we want to continue? I would say that most times, if you are making that decision to pull that plug earlier than three months, either things have gone horribly wrong or you're making a decision before you have enough data to really determine that. Yeah, before you have. Yeah. So, but as you're saying, the sweet spot is that three months and trying to get to the spot where there's a 50 to 20 uh, click throughs. Yeah, which is actually quite precise as you talk about answering that or the right way to go about it. You mentioned a family law lawyer. I mean, as an attorney, you see that there are certain areas of law that uh, are really bid up, aren't they? I think specifically personal injury lawyers. I know you work with some of them as well, where they're prepared to spend a great deal because one file walks in the door and it might be worth a great deal of money to the attorney, right? What are you seeing or what's the hierarchy of spends that you see for attorneys? Yeah. So there's two things that are based off this is the practice area and the location. So for example, Houston car accidents might be $600 a click. That's one click, $600. Mesothelioma in some places can be $1,000 a click. Wow. Car accidents in more mid to competitive markets, I typically will find will be more towards $100 to $150 per click, where in lower competitive markets, we've gotten clicks for some of our clients in personal injury for $30 to $50. Bucks. 
which is much mm-hmm. uh, less expensive than some of these other areas. So for personal injury, I tend to expect to spend around 80 to 150 per click for things like general personal injury searches or car accident searches. When you get more niche like birth injury or things that people don't specialize as much in, then it can get a lot cheaper. For criminal defense, maybe 20 to $50, depending at you know, there's a big difference between a capital murder case and a small drug offense or whatever it may be. But most people are going after the drug offenses and the DUIs, which mm-hmm. I'm more so looking at about a 20 to $30 cost per click, again, with the caveat of different areas are going to have different levels of competition. For something like family law, I'd say, you know, not that unsimilar to the criminal defense, where depending on the area, it might be 15 to 25, maybe $35 in really competitive areas, but it tends to be a lot less competitive. FLSA stuff or just employment law tends to be a lot cheaper, where for FLSA specifically, uh, lost wages and stuff like that might be like five to eight dollars per click in mid sized markets that we've been in. Um, other employments might go up to like $10, $15 if you're getting into like discrimination or other things like that, sexual harassment as well. Off the top of my head, those are probably the markets that I can speak the best to. Um, whistleblower stuff, I mean, cases for someone to take on the cases like 500k is like a minimum case that they're willing to take on because you have to involve the government and whatnot mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. those clicks are actually very cheap mainly like eight to ten dollars yeah because not a lot of people are right. doing that type of work right yes, and also yes. because a lot of the leads just aren't qualified there's right. a lot of people who are like hey you know my boss said something that i didn't like i want to sue them it's just not worth the time we're right. not big enough case for the government to get involved so because you know a lot of those lawyers only one or two cases per year and they can get a lot of you know, unqualified leads, the cheapest cost per click is very low compared to the size of the case because of that. So that's the best I can speak to of those certain areas. Hello, podcast friend. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the show. We sure appreciate having you here. I'd like to take a minute to invite you to download a free digital copy of my best-selling book, The Millionaire's Lawyer, Grow and Sell Your Business. It's available for download at jpmacavoy.com. That's jpmc. A-V-O-Y.com. Hope you enjoy the book. And thanks again for joining us on the podcast. Now back to the show. What's interesting is, uh, Jared, as you drill it down for attorneys, I mean, obviously you are able to service uh, multiple areas and you're in a very competitive space yourself, right? What do you do to differentiate your own business? Because as you say, I mean, we talk about uh, competitors or crowded spaces. You're in one yourself as well. And you've clearly been able to distinguish yourself. How have you gone about doing that? Yeah, so this is... This is something where I'm not the best at talking about myself. I wish I was, you know, a lot of people, you know, enjoy it a lot more than I do, to be honest. But (laughs) one of the big things for me is that within our space, the marketing space, the digital marketing space, there's no barrier to entry. If Mm -hmm. you yourself wanted to become an SEO expert tomorrow, you could just call yourself that charge someone, you know, high rates with the expectation of, you know, someone signing on for six to 12 months. There's plenty of people that do that. My background is so I got started in this when I was 14. Mm-hmm. And I taught myself a lot of this. I was working online for $5 an hour when I was freelancing. I did corporate marketing for about a year. I then worked in-house for an agency for a little bit over a year. And off the back of that, I was investing tens of thousands of dollars of my own money per year on going to conferences, on training materials. I was reading thousands of different articles. I was very heavily vested in the learning side of things. Mm-hmm. And so that was my background is I don't, I don't know jack about sales. You know, my process is, okay, this is what you want to do. This is how much it's going to cost. Yes, no. If you say no, that's fine. If you say yes, that's great. There is no, you know, NLP. There is no kind of, you know, sales tactics or whatever. It's just, okay, I know this very deeply. Here's how I can help you. You know, that's my technical knowledge is kind of one of the big things that people often say. I take a lot of approach to education because I just have 
I have a degree in marketing, so I understand kind of the higher levels of just how important this is. Working in multiple businesses, I understand that as well. And also taking a very strategy-first approach, uh, specifically on the SEO side of things, is that this is one of the biggest differences on the SEO side of things is that, and I don't really understand it, is that a lot of people be like, you know, we have a budget of $3,000 a month. We want to invest in SEO. Agency goes, okay, great. You know, we'll do $3,000 a month worth of work. And my always question is, well, is that enough to actually reach the goals of what you're doing mm-hmm. in this campaign? Is it enough to reach the goals within any sort of realistic time frame? And who says it's not too little money, too much money? Or also, what are you actually buying from this person, right? So rather than that, what we've, what I basically founded the agency on was taking a strategy first approach where when someone comes to us, they can't just say, okay, great, I want to invest this much money and you know, I want to achieve this. It's okay, well, based on the size of your website, based on the scope of work, we do a one-time engagement as to create a strategy step-by-step. I mean, then we, if it's yours, you pay for it. If you want it DIY, if you want to send it to somebody else, that's perfectly fine or we can implement it. Totally up to you. And now through that process, we're able to actually identify what do you actually need to have done to your website? Where should your money actually be spent? Where should the resources and time go to that's going to maximize what you're actually going to get rather than agree to $3,000 a month and then figure that out later. To give you an example of, of how this looks for someone that actually saved a lot of money by deciding not to move forward after this process, which is something that good for them, obviously less than ideal situation for everybody involved, but they were in a very competitive space. We went through this and you know we're not inexpensive. The strategy process cost them $2,000. Mm-hmm. We went through it, took about two weeks to complete. They were looking to invest three to $4,000 a month in their SEO. Day one that I talked to them, I could have just said, okay, great, three grand a month, you know, sign here and move forward. After that process, we found out there is very little likelihood of them actually succeeding within the market because multiple national competitors over the past couple of years had moved into their market were investing heavily in SEO and their businesses were basically just too big where SEO was not currently a viable channel for them. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's unfortunate that they're like, hey, you know, I spent two grand and you know, now we're not moving forward. But yes, they can implement some of the stuff themselves, gave them plenty of resources to do that. But also would they have rather invested that two grand to find out that this isn't a viable solution or invested three, four grand for the next six to 12 months and then find that out. Yeah, I really learned it the hard way, right? The exactly. uh, lessons the hard way from that uh, and certainly apply to that situation. So what are some of the things that when you do that kind of analysis uh, for a website that people can be doing? Are there some basic things that people can be, uh, I'm sure people are doing things, a lot of things wrong as well. So what do you see as people doing wrong and what are the basic things people can be doing to, to really be doing things right? Yeah, so some of, the, some of the most basic things is one of the most common issues I've run into, especially with SMBs, is that they've worked with solutions that have caused more damage than good to their website. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges specifically with SEO is that your website is constant. It's not like an advertising campaign where if everything went wrong, you can just delete, start new, and you're good to go. If you did bad work previously, that work can hurt you two, three, four, five years from now. I've seen websites that did bad work multiple years ago, and then they get slammed for it years later. It's a very unfortunate situation to be in. So one of the big things I tell people to is one, don't invest until you actually invest in someone that's going to do good work, because there's plenty of stuff that you can do now that will help you now that won't help you a year or two from now that anyone in the industry will be able to say. So I generally tell people be very careful before you engage in any sort of mm-hmm. SEO. Next, I generally tell people because it's such a black box, because it changes too much, focus much more on the actual usability of your website and the conversion of your website before worrying about the ins and outs of the SEO specifically. For example, I cannot tell you how often we come across websites that are like, hey, we want to invest in getting a lot more traffic to a website, and I can't even find the phone number. 
where I'm struggling to figure out, okay, if I wanted to contact you, how would I even do that in the first place? Or why is it that you mention all these great services that you're able to provide, but you only have a sentence about each of them? Well, how does that convince me that I actually want to work with you? And not only that, but it's also good for SEO to have those pages in the first place. So mm-hmm. one of the most basic things is actually having content on your website, even if it's not properly optimized, it's better to have the page than to not. You know, Google can't determine that you do X, Y, and Z if you do not tell them that that is something that you do. Right. Google's not going to know that you take on birth injury cases if your only pages on your website talk about car accidents. So that's one of the most basic things. Another thing is to make sure your website actually loads quickly. One, that is good for users, but also good for Google. The average user will leave a website on mobile if it takes more than four seconds to load. Right. Now, compare that to the average small business website taking six to eight seconds to load on mobile. (laughs) That's a pretty big issue. So not only is Google going to like your website more because it loads quickly, but also your users are going to be able to use your website more often. They're going to be able to Mm -hmm. convert more easily. So these are some of the things that how you actually do that depending on the website can be super simple. Sometimes it's just as simple as setting up a caching plugin plugin. If you're on WordPress hitting activate and that could be solved. Other times it might be an issue with where you're hosted and whatnot. So how easy that is really depends. The other thing I'll typically tell people is to just make it super clear what each page is about two things, your H1 tag and your title tag. Very easy to do on WordPress. If you use any sort of SEO plugin out of the box, it'll have a field for your title tag tell it what the page is about car accident page car accident yes there are more ways to optimize that to make it better but again you're probably not looking to spend you know 100 hours trying to figure out how to get everything done with your website your h1 tag is almost always what your what do they call it? i think they call it the page title but basically if you're on the back end of wordpress you have like this title bar and then you have the actual the body content In most wordpress themes the title box will actually be what the h1 tag on the website is if you don't know, you'd have to ask a developer unless you know how to use the inspect tools to actually check that. But nine times out of 10, most themes out of the box will use that as their H1 tag. So again, just making it super clear that that's what that is. I can't tell you how often I go to a website and their title tags are just home or new page or whatever it may be, where if Google's coming to your website, they can't figure that out. So those are some of the basic things, but because it changes so often, I find it's not uncommon for people to date themselves a ditch when they try to do this themselves, unless they actually invest in spending the time to do it more so than I'd be able to talk about on this. But if you are like, hey, I want to dive into this, I would recommend trying looking at very kind of safe strategies, something like moz.com. They have blogs end to end on SEO, where I don't like looking at as what you'll hear as white, gray, black hat. I like to look at everything as risk mitigation. Everything with SEO comes with a risk. What is accepted by Google today could be unacceptable by Google tomorrow. So focus on the lowest risk stuff possible, which are changes that you make to your own individual website. I would not venture into the world of backlinks or offsite optimization. That is where most people get screwed. That is where a simple $500 investment could turn into a $5,000 fix. So I tend Mm -hmm. to tell people to stay away from it. Yes, it is very powerful. Yes, it can do a lot of good for you, but it's also very easy to do it very wrong. So Mm -hmm. I tend to say, make the changes to your website. If you want to dive into the technicals, things of like internal linking, siloing, content optimization, TFIDF, or all these kind of technical terms, I would recommend going to something like moz.com. They have plenty of resources where you can actually learn that if you wanted to implement it at a very safe level for yourself. And that's basically the best advice I can get there. Yeah, the best way to go in, you know, just some some basic things that you say, just looking at, you know, how things are being named, how things are organized. So Google can find them as well. And obviously some of the more, you know, 
some of the deeper things, people would probably look, be looking to somebody such as yourself to help them implement that type of thing. How do you charge or how does it, what is an engagement with you and uh, uh, Blue Dog Media look like? Yeah, sure. So on the Google ad side of thing, our pricing is fixed. Depending on how big of a campaign we're going, we have different tiers of what it's going to cost to actually build out that campaign. And on a management basis, it's based off of how much someone is spending. That basically dictates how much work it is. It's not a percentage of a lot of people do the percentage of ad spend. I'm not a big fan of that. We tier it based off of how much someone's spending. So for example, if someone's spending between five and $10,000 a month on ad spend, we charge them about a grand to manage it. On the SEO front, what we do is the overall strategy process. That is, we have some things we'll just, it'll be like, oh, we know this is going to cost us like $50 to do for an individual task, where other tasks are just based off of how big the website is. So how many pages do we actually have to keep research for? How many pages do we have to analyze for uh, content audit, things like that. So for most, it's fixed price, but based off of the size of the site, most people tend to be when, within the one to two grand range, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And then based off that, what we do is we understand, okay, what is the client willing to invest versus how many problems did we find? And is that realistic? So what we might find through our strategy process, because again, yes, we could jump into engagement at whatever someone wants to pay us. We could do $10 worth of work, $10,000 worth of work, et cetera. But what we find from there is how much work needs to get done. How much is that going to cost us? What do we need to charge in order to kind of get that done? We then formulate that into what will sense on a month by month basis in terms of what should we do month one, month two, so on and so forth. And then we present that within a, um, basically we sit down on a screen share, go over a slide deck of everything that we found, as well as what it's going to charge as what we'd have to charge. For example, we were working with a family lawyer who I'm assuming that they didn't know, but whoever was working on the website previously just stole content from other websites and oh goodness, yeah. just copied. That really, yeah. yeah, that really hurts you, doesn't it? That's what I'm hearing now as well. I mean, obviously it's illegal as well, but it really does hurt <laughs> as well. Yes. So there's a couple of, there's a myriad of issues that you'll run into with that. And it was to the extent of every single page on the website had this issue aside Mm. from like the about page. And so in order to fix that, just the content costs is just what it would cost us to fix that much content would be like $7,500. So this is a very painful conversation that we had to have with the client, which is that here's the solution. Either one, we eliminate half your website and then we just delete it and then we fix just the core pages and then we slowly rebuild out all those other pages again over time or you invest very heavily right now and fix all those pages and that's a very tough decision to have to make mm. but if that client had come to us and said you know i want to invest xyz per month and then we find that issue after we already start well then we go oh just fixing this one issue within this budget might take us four or five months you know the result that they want to get you know they just increase it by you know 12 months because we have to spend so much time on this one issue so Hopefully that gives you some sort of yeah, idea. No, it gives you some some sense. Yeah. And when you say, so for that 7,500, are you doing the copy then as well? Is that what, uh, are you capable of doing that copy? Uh, the new copy, the unplagiarized copy, if you will? <laughs> for most clients, we will handle copy for them. We work with a team of freelance writers. When clients have internal copywriters, then they'll use their, they'll write their own copy. Sometimes they'll have mm-hmm. their own developers as well, in which case then we won't implement the stuff if they want their developers to implement things on their behalf. But who handles it? It really depends on the client. Sometimes it's like pulling teeth, getting content and content. Yeah, to get the content written right. It's a, it's another it's another uh, battle itself, right? To get the actual content written. You've got interesting content on your own end of things, and I'm sure you follow your own advice. What are some of your copywriting tips as well? Because uh, you have a, ne- a unique way of writing, I see, from your own website. <laughs> yeah. So for if you're writing copy. F- one of the downsides of having somebody else write content for you, whether that is someone on your staff whether that is a freelance writer that you personally hired or whether that's working in a situation like us that we're hiring 
you know, that we're working with a different writer as well, is that you're not going to get your voice perfectly in any of that unless you mm-hmm. personally write it. So one of the things is that for my business, because people are often coming to me for me, they saw a podcast that I was on, they saw a talk that I gave, they, whatever it may be, they found me somewhere online. It's very important for my voice to be very consistent. So mm-hmm. I write all of my content personally, anything that you see that's on my websites, I have written myself because I have tried going the having other people write it and the content was good. It just didn't sound like me. So that was very important to me because the business, you know, my personal site is very much so based on me personally. And so the style that I write in is also just what I like, which is you'll see very short sentences. You'll see an F-bomb like every three words. That's just how I talk naturally. Mm -hmm. So it's very naturally me. I tend to be pretty sarcastic. I tend to tell uh, terrible jokes. So for example, I'll often say things like, you know, when I learn, I'm like a sponge that's discovered cocaine. You know, it's not the most PC thing in the world to say, and that's fine because that's just how I talk. It's very naturally me. So yeah. if you're writing your own content, just write for you. Yes, does that ostracize some people? Yes, but those aren't the people that I want to work with in the first place, right? Yeah. I have, you know, a lot of my clients, they'll be like, oh, I'm frustrated with something and they'll drop F-bombs and I don't care because I do it too. Whereas if I'm working with someone that is very much more, for lack of a better word, uptight about that, you know, that relationship could very quickly be deteriorated if I have to think about how I actually need to communicate with this person because I can't actually be myself because, you know, they don't communicate that way. So yes, it does ostracize some people, but also it reinforces to other people that, oh, that's who I want to work with. Yeah, Yeah, it's your voice or being true to your voice. And when we speak about that, Jared, what are some of the things that speak to you? Like where are your influences from? What what motivates you? What are some things you've turned to in the past? You mentioned the, uh, you know, you're doing a lot of coursework and attending things on your own. What are some of the things that have really resonated with you that uh, might resonate with those listening here now? So for me, honestly, it comes down to just having fun. That's really like, if I didn't enjoy what I was doing, I just wouldn't do it. I mean, so here's what I'll say. The state of the business right now, I could double or triple our revenue within 30 to 60 days. No problem. Because I know that we get several hundred people per month reaching out to us, and we have very, very few conversations with people that actually want to work with. The reason why is that we spend a lot of time improving the quality of our services, improving the quality of you know our retention rates and the quality, the happiness of team members, so on and so forth. I do that because that is stuff that I enjoy. I personally do not enjoy having a business that taking a more volume approach like other notable companies that, you know, so for example, a company like Scorpion, they couldn't have over 10,000 clients, Uh, whether or not that's true, I can't really speak to that, but I would not enjoy having that sort of business. Yes, be making a lot more money They do last I heard about 150 million plus a year. But in order to run that type of business model, you have to spend Mm -hmm. most of your time, money and effort, you know, improving your sales team, your account management team, and overall, your the skill of your fulfillment team at that sort of level doesn't really matter. So it was just really being true to myself and not just building a business that's big and that makes a lot of money because I can. It's doing what I personally enjoyed. If I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't do it because my passion wouldn't be kind of seen through to it. So why do I spend more time working on how to, you know, improve how our keyword research file looks, which I spent an entire day working on the other day where I could have spent that day, you know, prospecting or talking to more leads or whatever it could have been, because I know it's going to be a more enjoyable experience to people who see that document and current clients and clients that we take on. That's a lot more important to me, the experience that people who we choose to work with have than it is for me to, you know, sign another, you know, 
five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand right. dollars a month of recurring. Yeah, you're you know? you're building it very intentionally, and I appreciate that mm-hmm. as well. It's a it's a great answer, and uh, we obviously want people to be building their businesses in a similar fashion, right? What they enjoy. That's a personal life satisfaction things. What kind of things do you do outside of work? You know, for for personal life satisfaction. Uh, basically, play video games. <laughs> there you go. What which game specifically? So I'm someone that is competitive in and out. No matter what it is, I only do things if I feel as though that I can be the best, even though I more than likely won't. I just feel as though, you know, there's no chance of me, you know, improving and becoming more. If I'm just going to fit in with everyone else, I just don't enjoy it. Same thing with video games. Like I don't play it to relax. I play it to be frustrated. Like I, so (laughs) I tend to play more, I tend to play games that have ranked systems where it gets harder and harder over time. So a lot of battle royales tend to be my favorite style of game. If you're not familiar with battle royales, think if you've ever seen the movie battle royale from Japan, very popular film, if not hungry games, kind of basically same thing. A lot Mm -hmm. of people go in one team or person comes up. So games like Apex Legends uh, used to play a lot of PUBG, PlayerUnknown's Battleground uh, back in the day. Hyperscape just came out, which is a very interesting game that I've been playing too much of, to be honest. <laughs> Rocket League as well, which is a car-based, basically you play soccer, but with cars. Different concept, but that as well, just anything that's competitive, more casual style games just don't honestly really appeal to me. I'm just, I guess, competitive by nature. <laughs> Yeah, you like the competitive nature of things. Uh, now, so you do, I mean, your uh, day job or, you know, on day by computer, and then obviously you game quite a bit. Are you concerned at all about the length of time that you spend on online or on a computer from a health perspective? Oh, for sure. No, I, I'm definitely screwed in the long run. So <laughs> so what I, what I try to do is work in time for you know, going for like a walk half an hour or something like that. I mean, uh, the downside of New Hampshire is we have very bipolar weather. So we can get yeah. real feel negative 20 in the winter and real feel 110 in the summer. So lately haven't really gone out a whole lot, but I do try to like, this is a sit stand desk. So just try to do small things. So it's like, Oh, you know, when I'm in meetings, I'm standing or I'm walking around or I'm getting up every 20, 30 minutes or whatever it may be. But there are, there's a lot more that I can do. And there's a lot more that honestly, most people should do. So I've started yeah. looking into chairs a lot more. Like I didn't know that there was actual ratings for chairs based on hours. So there's something called like a 20 hour chair, 24 hour chair, so on and so forth, which is how many hours you can sit in that chair comfortably without it being an issue. So if you look at something like a, like a Herman Miller chair, like the Aeron chairs might be like $1,500, but it's also something that one should last you a lifetime. And two is something that you can adjust every part of it, fine tune mm-hmm. to your individual body, which is going to be a lot more beneficial to you overall. So the ergonomics of things as well, but no, I mean, it's, it's certainly not healthy. What, yeah, and you're not unique in that way as well as I asked that question as well. It's just interesting when we when we think about business, when we talk about growing business and the things that we do, we want the business to be healthy and grow. And then we oftentimes neglect ourselves as we're growing that business, not being thoughtful to ourselves. And uh, as you say, something as simple as a chair can really uh, impact or pay dividends depending on which way it's used or which way it's looked at. Yeah, It's interesting you say that. So getting out or those types of things. And obviously investing in the future. So if we were having this conversation in you know five years time, how have things changed between now and then five years from here? Sure. So one of the one of the big things that we're working through right now is a rebrand, which will hopefully be launched later this year. Mm-hmm. Another big thing is there's a key hire or two that I'm looking to make within the next year or two, which will help me remove myself from the business quite a bit. And I've taken a very slow and deliberate approach to hiring where yes, we could afford to do X, Y, and Z, but because we try to operate as as high as a level as possible, it's not viable for us to just hire somebody, even if they have experience or they have no experience, it's very important for us to make sure that we're hiring the right person and that we take a very slow and deliberate approach with it. So 
slowly making those hires and making sure it's the right hire over time. There's also a couple more businesses that I operate with. So I have an investment company that we buy, grow, and sell digital assets. That's more of a side project that I want to grow over time, making a public case study over that. It's just something that I'm really passionate about. I think is interesting. And honestly, just enjoying things. I'm very go with the flow kind of person. I, I think if you asked me two years ago, where would I be today? I w- certainly wouldn't be explaining where I am now. I mean, if, you know, if, if I don't feel good about, you know, how we're doing things, then we're going to, we're going to change it. If I think that there's a new opportunity for us to take it, we're going to, then we're going to take it. And that's the evolution of business, right? And life itself, uh, which, so I appreciate the answer that way. Uh, a lot of interesting things we discussed here today. We'll put a lot of this up in, in the show notes. If people want to re- reach out and find you, I understand there's a rebrand, a, a rebrand that's in process as well. If they want to find you right now, Blue Dog Media. What's the best way to connect with you? Sure. So you can go to teambluedog.com and we have a form as well as my, I think my personal scheduling link is also on there as well. If you go to the contact page, don't quote me on that. But depending on where this comes out, it might automatically redirect you to the new website, which is just gommetfuel.com. So it'll be pretty much pretty easy to reach out. I answer the forms myself. The only social I'm really active on is Facebook, which I honestly need to change. But yeah, website, reach out to me there if you want to um, you know, ask questions or talk about working together or whatever it may be. Yeah, engage in, in other ways. That's interesting, actually. I didn't ask social media. And a lot of times that does inform these questions because social media seems to be so important for, I guess, many businesses, not all. Interesting that you just speak to Facebook. So you're not using any other for your own business. For clients, are there times where you're telling them to ensure that they're using other uh, social media? Or is it something that you don't uh, really put much of uh, an emphasis on? Yeah, so it is important. It's something that we should be using. I and mean, we've been in a very fortunate position where, so we run our agency as a more boutique style, meaning that we limit how many clients that we work with. Mm-hmm. We only work with 20 to 30 accounts at a time right now. And so because of that, we're almost always at or near max capacity. So we haven't had to invest a whole lot into marketing our own business because mm-hmm. it just wouldn't be viable for us. Yeah, you just, yeah, you've been filling the coffers that way so, naturally. Exactly. So as we kind of you know make another hire or two that we ex- can expand how many accounts that we work with, the size of accounts, it's going to be a lot more important for us to do that. For clients, my general advice for clients is don't outsource it. Honestly, hiring social media companies, in my experience, from what I've seen, obviously, not obviously, but generally doesn't work because it's so brand focused. It's almost always better to have someone internally actually creating the content. Maybe they're running the strategy behind it, but you should be creating the actual content of it because it's very brand focused. Uh, gen- yeah. Generic messages don't really resonate. It just looks generic. That's right. It's not, people can tell that it's not authentic and uh, then it doesn't resonate with the reader I mean, at all. Look at, look at the Wendy's Twitter. Right. I mean, a fast food company will literally tell you to F off on Twitter now, right? That they have a very unique brand where they're telling inappropriate jokes, where they're swearing at people, where they're, you know, making fun of people. And because of that, they're also one of the most well known social media mm-hmm. channels and everyone wants to follow them because it's hilarious. Whereas if you're just promoting, you know, here's an event that you went to, here's like a general thought that you have on something that most people don't care about. You have to actually have some personality on there and you have to take a very deliberate approach especially there's a very saturated market everyone's on social media you can't just say you know hey you know my name's bob and then have a thousand new followers tomorrow these markets are very saturated especially facebook twitter yeah it's all yeah that time's already been spent well what about blogging for, for people that are you know on the website blogging some of that do you uh, cite that as being i guess a more important place to spend your time so more or less important really depends so social media is one of the most powerful things you can do with social media is distribute the content through a content marketing strategy. So that's where it can become very important. With creating informational content on the website, it does a couple of things. One is on the SEO front, 
we're able to use that to not only get more traffic for top of the funnel for whatever that content is about, but also it helps drive visibility on search for your actual service pages as well. What it also does is it helps convert people where what you can do is if you have a you know, ultimate guide to what you have to do after a car accident or how to, you know, what 10 documents do you need before you, you know, hire a divorce lawyer or how to choose the right lawyer for you or whatever it may be. These are resources that people can look at and go, oh, this is information I want to know. You can also use that informational content for advertising as well, where, like I said earlier, when we were talking about that CPA example, we're targeting people that don't know that they need a CPA. You can create informational content and then run ads against that informational content to get people onto your website, to then get them to sign up for your email list, to get them to download your lead magnet or your PDF or whatever it may be. Yeah, there you go. So just again, content, right? And good content uh, mm-hmm. that uh, provides value to people is really the way that, that you attract people. And that makes sense. People want to learn and they're, they're seeking a great source for that learning. We hope that the Millionaire's Lawyer is one such place to, to gather that type of information and, that, and do that type of learning. I like to leave these podcast uh, episodes with one thing that the listeners can take with them through the rest of the day or the rest of the week. So one tip from uh, you know, one of our resident experts uh, that they can do, maybe they can implement in their own life, their own business. Jared, what would, what would be something that you'd leave uh, listeners with here today for, to take sort of through the rest of the day, through the rest of the week? Sure. So what I would suggest for everyone listening is alluding back to what we talked to earlier is track your ROI from start to finish. The way you do this, as in as briefly as time as I can possibly say this, is most platforms will track your clicks automatically. Then you need to track your conversions. I can't go into the details now because of time, but you're generally tracking forms and phone calls. Google how to track form conversions on Google Ads, Analytics, Facebook Ads, whatever platform. Very simple. How to track phone calls. Sign up for CallRail. Talk to their support if you can't figure it out. And now you're tracking conversions. Get that all hooked up to whatever platform it is. If you don't know how to hook it up, hire a developer. Super easy and super cheap. Honestly, you can pay someone like 20 bucks and get most of this figured out for you. A lot of it's built in. So now you're tracking your conversions. The next thing you need to track is make sure that gets imported into your customer database. Some, if you're using something like Infusionsoft or Salesforce, most things have a built-in plugin. If not, again, API is very accessible. Developer, 20 bucks, and you're good to go. Now you can see in your database how many people are coming in from each individual source. Within your database, track how many of those people are turning into customers track what those customers pay you so that when you're talking to your internal team, when you're talking to your marketing agencies that you're working with, you don't have to say, how much traffic did we get this month? How mm-hmm. much, yeah. how many leads did we get this month? You can say, we got $50,000 in new gross profit. We made this many customers, whatever it may be. That's much more helpful information for both you and the people that you're working with if they know what they're doing than just talking about traffic or conversions. That's right. Yeah. So being very specific, I, can, I hear you, Jared, saying, let's use some analysis behind this. Let's, let's do this thoughtfully. So we've got good data and then we can analyze it and obviously make best decisions. I appreciate the, all the advice today. And that's uh, certainly great advice to end with as all. Well. Jared, we appreciate everything you've done here for The Millionaire's Lawyer. And we look forward to speaking with you again in the future. You as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Millionaire's Lawyer. Please subscribe and rate on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. To get your business millionaire assessed and to access the wide variety of resources that we offer in addition to this podcast, go to jpmcavoy.com. That's jpmcavoy.com.